I'm Chaplain Jacob Scott of the Oregon National Guard. This is the Hope in the Trenches podcast. We're going forward. I'll sit down for conversations with people who offer interesting and informative perspectives on finding strength for life and work in the trenches and even improving our spiritual posture. Whether you feel like you're under heavy bombardment or ready to go over the top toward a new objective, it's good to be with you. In the studio with me this afternoon, I've got Chaplain Shane Yates. He's the Deputy Joint Force Headquarters Chaplain. And Major Chris Klein, our our great producer from the Oregon Public Affairs Office. And our guest today is Chaplain Wes Moldogo. Wes currently serves as the 2nd Battalion 162nd Infantry Regiment Chaplain. He recently deployed with our other great infantry battalion here in the Oregon Guard to Combined Joint Task Force Horn of Africa. On the civilian side, he serves as a hospice chaplain for Partners in Care Hospice in Bend, Oregon, and is a supplemental on-call chaplain for the local health care system in Central Oregon. He currently serves on the board for the Central Oregon Veterans Council, the Peaceful Presence Project, and he's developing a framework for veterans with moral injury at the end of life in collaboration with the Central Oregon Veterans Ranch. Chaplain Moldogo did his clinical residency at Stanford Healthcare, and he's currently pursuing a graduate certificate of thanatology at Hood College. We're going to have him explain thanatology a little bit more. He has a special interest as well in palliative medicine and what impacts a person's quality of life, both in and out of the military. Wes, thanks so much for being with us here today. Absolutely, sir. Thank you, gentlemen, for, for having me. And you too, Shane. Oh, I'm I'm excited to be here. It's going to be great. It's a good time to good time to lock arms and get some stuff out there. So, Wes, tell tell us a little bit more about your origin story. What's been the the journey that led you, well, not just to Oregon, but into the Army chaplaincy to begin with? Oh gosh, in in many ways, the the type of chaplain care and, and spiritual care I provide it's 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 based off of of my growing self, <laughs> and and that's been reflected at every point of. Of my life and my care. So I decided to become a chaplain um, actually long before that. So in, in high school, I, I ended up um, going to a youth group for church, a Christian Missionary Alliance youth group. And the funny thing about this youth group was that it was ethnically affiliated with the Hmong people. So it was mm-hmm. a, a Hmong Christian Missionary Alliance church. And I was, I'm ethnically Filipino. And I ended up just going to this church as like the one Filipino guy. But at the same time, I've always felt welcome there. And so as like a, a non-religious person, I eventually just through good relationship ended up um, becoming a Christian. And when I graduated from high school, I went to one of their affiliated um, Bible colleges called Simpson University in Redding, California. And I went there on a four-year Army ROTC scholarship. And, and that's where my story began, really. And during my first semester there, I lost that scholarship due to a, a medical disqualification for eczema, which was like a really random thing. And I... That, that's where it started. I, I lost it. Um, I, I was at this expensive Christian private university, had no way to pay for it. And I remember just venting to a couple of folks in my dorm one day, hey, I'm going through this this pain internally. No one really understands. And there's just no way I can um, move forward with this. And it, it just felt really random to me. I, I got some really fast acting comforting and a bunch of Bible verses. And I thought, yeah, I, I still feel like like, but at the end of the day, and um, at the end of it, I had the campus chaplain um, come up to me 
And out of all the things this person did, all this person did was listen to me and uh, yeah, just let me be who I needed to be um, without trying to overly palliate me. And that was for the most comforting. That was my first experience with the chaplain. And I was thinking, yeah, I'm gonna move forward from there. And they gave me sort of the reassurance. And so from there I ended up enlisting um, in the guard, trying to get a, a GRFD scholarship, never got it. And so I ended up sneaking to OCS with like 90 credits and then ended up commissioning. And I, I sort of promised God at that point, if you let me commission, I'm gonna be a chaplain. And so I, I followed through with that. And here I am as a chaplain this very day. We're glad to have you in Oregon. Yeah. Because that's a funny story, too. That was how we first met tel uh, by phone. Oh, God, yeah. Trying to get you on the deployment to, to Africa with 186 Infantry. Oh, yeah. Um, Shout-outs to, to you, sir. Shout-outs to Chaplain Delbridge. Uh, when I first came to Oregon Guard, I was actually hunting for a deployment. So um, for those of you who don't know me, I was actually really inexperienced as a, a military chaplain when I um, joined the Guard. And I, I didn't have years of congregational experience um, like my counterparts did. So I'm like, you know what's going to make up for the experience in all insecurity? I'm going to I'm going to go on a deployment. And so I I, surf, I circumvented my chain of command and then reached it up to ended up reaching out to other states. And that's how I ran into Chaplain Delbridge. And I I want to say out of complete mercy for me, he was like, let's take a chance on this guy. And I ended up popping into to Oregon on this deployment with the 186 recently. Full disclosure, you know we don't. We, we usually recommend that people don't uh, go outside their chain of command, but... It's so bad. It, well, there's a country song that God bless the broken road, right? So, we're, well, we're glad we have you. No, thank you. <laughs> uh. So in the Chaplain Corps, we, we've used that, this phrase to live your call. So your call to the chaplaincy came from your experience with a... Uh, a campus chaplain. So did that get you thinking about chaplaincy serving in a variety of settings or was it the your your desire to serve in the military that led you to the chaplaincy first and then you ended up through your training or other interests becoming a hospital chaplain and now a hospice chaplain? No, that that's a great question, sir. It's it's a little bit of everything that if that makes sense. And so, what was really weird about this campus chaplain? I don't even know if I want to give him a shout out his name. I don't know if he'd appreciate it, but he was just not your typical thing. Because I think in our society, we'll, we'll think of chaplain and we automatically equate it to pastor. He just didn't say those typical pastor things. If that made sense, he was soft spoken. Um, did not reference the Bible at all. You know, within this Christian community, but it still had that same pastoral effect on me. And that just got me really curious about this guy's background. I ended up reaching out to him, you know, a couple of years after I commissioned as an officer saying, hey, what makes you or what made you do this? And he introduced me into the world of, of clinical chaplaincy and chaplaincy in a pluralistic environment. And I thought, oh my gosh, that is very similar to what I think God is calling me to. And for those of you that don't know that are listening, um, military uh, chaplains serve in a I like to call or what we call a pluralistic environment where you have this diverse set of, of folks, not everyone's religious, and we, we throw around the term spiritual. And I, I think that trends towards that direction of that FM7-22 holistic care model, acknowledging a person's spirituality, religious or not. And I thought, this is what separates this guy from there. And this is what he used to relate to my my, my humanity at that point that I, mm -hmm. I just didn't find within that Christian community. And I'm not, by no means am I bashing the Christian community. I, I consider myself a, a professing Christian uh, in the love of Christ, but I just thought, yeah, you just touched me on a different level guy and I appreciate it. 
Well, so if you have you heard that phrase, Wes, that that army chaplains are a pastor to some, but a chaplain to all. Yeah, that that is a, a very true phrase in every sense of it, sir. I, I love it. Yeah, because that's you know, and that's well, it's the seven twenty two holistic health and fitness. I've referenced that manual in several other episodes of the podcast, but it does specifically address that. Well, the opportunity for soldiers to be religious or to observe no religion at all. And it's kind of one of those cases where the rising tide raises all ships because what what, what we do as chaplains to preserve that First Amendment right for the free expression of religion, balanced by uh, not forcing religion on anyone or not forcing a state religion as the Constitution puts it, but uh, but giving giving every soldier an opportunity to be religious or not be religious. Of course, what the 7-22 states kind of undeniably is that there's a spiritual component to life that has that really in order to be holistically healthy or wholly healthy, you, you have to address that and take care of that and nurture that. Absolutely, sir. Um, yeah, I, I, it's funny how language has evolved over the past couple of decades uh, with, with that. Uh, terminology and, and phrase. Um, what I really appreciate about 7-22, I think the, the latest one was what, in 2020, right? Um, mm-hmm. The latest version of that. I, I want to say in uh, the work I do in hospice, and I don't even know if folks out there understand the, the concept of hospice or what palliative care is, hospice, uh, more so pertaining on the goal of comfort for those that have a, um, uh, a prognosis, uh, uh, towards death um, and palliative care emphasizing quality of life. Um, these are very holistic types of, of discussions that take place. And often what is lifted up at that point is a sense of spirituality. So every decision you make, um, it, it, it's a holistic one. And I, I just, yeah, when I think about that particular instance I described in college, what I saw that chaplain doing in particular wasn't just there was a religious perspective, don't get me wrong. And there was a strong intention and conviction there by this guy's actions. Don't doubt that at all. But what I did see was this guy taking into consideration my entire pain. So um, what it was like for me psychologically, mm-hmm. the emotional tour was for me, the, the burden financially. And it's more like I'm approaching you from there versus, hey, man, you know, look at the story of Job, <laughs> you know, and, and bad luck this guy had. And, and, and that was the main difference. If I had to be like really minute, detailed about his intervention strategy with me, and no, I, anyway, I'm, I'm just relating to this concept of holistic care, holistic health. And I, I think FM seven twenty two, the way I interpret it, it almost implies that everyone does have a sense of a spirituality, whether it's a religious or not. And um, my encouragement, and a lot of what I like to do, is help people. Um, name it, put language to it, mm-hmm. and see how it impacts their care and, and, and their soldiering, really. I don't think it just implies it. It, it, it explicitly it, states yeah. it, right, that, that spiritual readiness is, is important to, to every soldier, to every soldier and every leader. Yeah. Now, there's because there are those events in life, like the, the situation that you experienced in college, that make some of the big questions much more pressing or put put the, the big questions right in front of you. Because when, when everything's clicking along really well, things things are going fine, you know, if you hadn't encountered that adversity, you might not have 
asked yourself some of those questions or looked at your identity, your direction in life um, it, with as much scrutiny or with, this, with the same type of urgency. So obviously in, in your work as a hospice chaplain and providing care to people at the end of life, those big questions really become unavoidable, don't they? Yeah. What's the old Jewish saying? Yeah. You can't talk about something until you talk about everything. Yeah. And and I, I just can't help but think when someone explicitly reflects on their goals, in addition to talking about something that's probably taboo. So I, I specifically named death and 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 what that may be related to in a person's life in terms of closure, that that definitely arises. Um, so it relates to their coping. It relates to who they are. And I don't even know if they are aware of who they are deep down inside and Ooh, do I like what I see? Do I not? Do I not like what I see with myself in relation to other people? That those are the big questions I run into. Do you find that people kind of get to the end of their ability to cope at certain points? Like the coping strategies that maybe worked when the situation wasn't as intense. Um, if if that doesn't work at the end of life, you, you gotta maybe try something different or explore something different or look at your life through a different lens? Yeah, a absolutely, sir. And so it's, it's, I mean, putting it in our language, it's, it's really journeying um, with the patient and, and their family through that change. Uh, usually that grief starts at the minute of, of prognosis. And I'd even say before that, maybe there's an acute diagnosis and they notice, well, oh gosh, my body's not working like it used to. I'm suddenly a little more overweight than I used to be. I don't look the same. And, and they've been um, having a bit of I use the phrase spiritual pain. I, I'm sure there are other, there's other language for it, but there's there's been spiritual pain there, and it, it follows them. And oftentimes these are taboo subjects, so they, they often don't bring it up till end of life, or maybe if they're inpatient at a hospital during a palliative care family meeting, uh, it, it then comes out, and it's like ooh. So they name it, and then there's like a bit of uncomfortability with the family. <laughs> they finally heard it. They, they never expected their mom or dad to to. They never expected them to see them in that light, um, uh, weak, maybe vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It's it's a groundbreaking thing. Now, you had kind of an interesting approach when you were working in hospital chaplaincy, or I don't know, maybe approach isn't the right word, but you, you had a prompt about, uh, well, f forgive me, was it the, the one big question or the surprise question? Yeah. Oh man, that's that's such a fascinating question. Um, for any clinician listeners out there, if you go on PubMed, they, they got a couple of articles written on it. But uh, long story short, um, and a lot of folks have been making the claim for for years and decades that people have been getting on a hospice too late. And part of it's due to the the, the uncomfortable talking about uh, uncomfortable topic of death, and uh, the the big feedback at the end of the day, um, CMS, um, it's like um, the... Uh, Can you tell us what CMS is? Yeah, I was going to say CMS. I, I'm trying to remember as I as I name it, but it's basically um, Medicare standards because hospice, it, it's paid for by Medicare, Medicaid. Um, the, you have to do a survey because you're, you're, you have to reevaluate something the, the taxpayers pay for and you got to get feedback on it. Um, the big feedback was like, we wish we knew about hospice sooner um, because... Uh, there's such a push and narrative, just in general, probably more of a Western idea to push back against death, and it brushes up against spiritual themes of acceptance, you know. And 
yeah, um, we really want to get people reflecting on hard topics sooner. So there's a screen question often done by medical and healthcare systems. And the question goes, it's called the surprise question. And it's there are nuances of it. But the question is, when a person's in the hospital, maybe they have uh, uh, a list of, of, of prior comorbidities or, or things that would kill them. So I want you to think of heart failure, history of stroke, maybe kidney failure, kidney injury, the list goes on. Maybe that alone won't kill you, but maybe a bunch of these, they're like a bunch of football players. Uh, if you get tackled by, by 10 of them, it's going to get a hard time getting up. Yeah. And it's like, would you be surprised if this person died in the next six months? Some people even do 12 months. And if the answer is no by the provider, mainly the hospitalist or physician, that induces a, a palliative care consult or a consult by a team that whose sole purpose in that hospital is to talk about quality of life and from a holistic perspective. So a palliative care team, it'll very much like your your your, your staff shop. So you have a, a discipline for everything. So you got a doctor, you got a social worker, you got a chaplain, and you're really touching up on that holistic model and saying, hey, looking at this person's life, do they know what decision they're they're planning to make if they choose to go on? You know, with that, some people feel strongly about it. Some people think, oh, my gosh, we're opening Pandora's box by making these folk <laughs> worry about their life. But given the feedback we usually get, we're seeing that, you know, they people need to know a little sooner for, for their benefit because you live your life differently at the end of the day, you know. So I'm reminded of the first time I had to go through a an SRP, a soldier readiness processing it's it's a it's a big. What's what's the right word? You go through usually it's in a gymnasium or on the drill floor, and you've you've got to cycle through a bunch of different stations where they check all of your personnel or administrative data, the paperwork, just to make sure that everything's in order, all the T's are crossed, I's are dotted. At one of the stations, you got to fill out a will. And you know, I remember I was a, I was a lieutenant or a brand new captain in my 20s filling out a will for the first time to go on that first deployment to Iraq. Well, and actually, well, we were going to Kuwait, uh, Iraq. The war hadn't started yet. But that puts it right in front of your, right in front of your face that uh, I might not come home for this, from this. Uh, is it kind of similar? I'm sure we probably had a lot of similar moments where suddenly our mortality is in front of us now because the people that we that we serve in the military are usually young in the in the prime of life and you, you can't go on a deployment if you're not otherwise physically ready um, but then they then they make you they put a piece of paper in front of you that says this is, your, this is my last will and testament right and now now my the possibility of my death is right in front of me and that makes you makes you think about some things or you got to work really hard to avoid those questions, don't you? Oh yeah, I I can't help but think about what I remember when I was enlisted. Like I I I'm not even sure if it was the same document, sir. But I I just remember not taking that very seriously. It was more of a check the box, give it to my mom. Uh, one of those things, yeah. Fifty percent to mom, fifty percent to dad. And I know that's probably more of the financial aspect of it. But I think some of the hard decisions I'll usually come across in patient at the hospital. Um, they're like, oh my gosh, you know, uh, this person can't make medical decisions. I haven't talked to them in years. This person's my mom, and now I got to decide whether or not, 
you know, based off of her quality of life, do, do I want to intubate her? And I, I got to come up with this decision in like 30 minutes because if they don't intubate her, like, mm. <laughs> oh my gosh, what becomes of that? Yeah. And I know that sounds a little extreme for maybe some of our, our viewers, but I can't help but think that right there induces what's meaningful to you. You know, what does my relationship look like? And I can't help but think those are very spiritual things that when I talk to your typical M-Day soldier and what they'll, they'll vent to me on maybe during the drill weekend or, or outside of it, it, it's related to that. And I can't help but think by fostering those discussions earlier, um, yeah, that, that would make a big deal, a big difference. I think that that's exactly one of the things that we're trying to do is to, to provide those prompts or to, to get people to consider where their sense of identity comes from, what's the, what's the foundation for the coping skills that they use to get through adversity or, or meet the challenges of everyday life. You know, before an acute challenge or an acute set of circumstances come, comes in front of you. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm instantly reminded of um, that, that course we took re recently, uh, the TEM course, um, Traumatic Event Management. And I, I, I don't even know how to explain it on here without being overly over, overly descriptive and, and taking up a bunch of time. But long story short, it, it, it's meant to uh, create a space and a framework even before the, the traumatic event happens to the point where when it does happen, you're, you're just sort of ready for it. But a lot of the pre-before stuff before that, it involves a lot of normalizing of this is a thing, and and this is why this is important. I can't help but think that that needs to be there needs to be a similar and parallel attitude when it comes to talking about just maybe more taboo topics, you know, of our time. I, I'm only going to name death here because that's what I, I think we've been talking about, and um, maybe closure and whatever pain you have in life, you know, and it doesn't even have to be about death, but I, I immediately think of a couple of folks, you know, maybe you got a bad relationship with, with a spouse, you got a bad relationship with your kids, bad relationship with the military. I mean, is, is this going to loom over you um, internally for a while? And this is where we really, you know, do that concentric circle, come into the intersection with the BHO and um, a good therapist, social worker, LPC, you know, and so... I, I would like to say um, the best chaplains I've ever met, kind of like that chaplain I met, and I'd say you too, chaplain, <laughs> chaplain Scott, they've always been chaplains that have acknowledged the reality of the behavioral sciences. And likewise, I've noticed the best BHOs I've ever worked with, they've had this strong spiritual component. Um, and when I say spiritual, not necessarily religious, but more so relating to that definition, 7-22, meaning, purpose, things people hold sacred. Like they're, they're not this clinical robot where... You know, and so I, that's where I, I find those two meeting very well and, and collaborating very closely when I, I think about um, soldier spirituality. Yeah, so shout out to Beth Kahn and Andre Hopkins. <laughs> I, oh, we're blessed with some yeah. great behavioral health officers uh, throughout the state of Oregon. And we did, we had uh, Major Beth Kahn on, one, on an earlier episode to talk about your deployment to Africa. And we asked her some questions too about transition and how do you, you know, once you, when you go coming back from a deployment, how do you transition successfully back into normal life? Because, well, the units, we had several units deployed during 2020, and they not only then were they deployed away from family, some in some very dangerous places, then you come back to your civilian life, and now it's, it's, late 2020 and COVID is in full swing. There was not a pandemic when we left and, and now there is. So how do you, how do you handle that? And how do you, 
how do you process your deployment experiences and how do you process the new challenges that the pandemic have brought? Oh, that's a good, that's a good one. Um, at least from, from, at least I'm, I, it's your discipline too. I, I was going to say it's my discipline, but in, in our discipline, at least from the clinical side, I'm looking at stuff like this. I'm thinking that that's a type of, of spiritual pain in the sense of you're, you're dealing with a sense of loss for something you've normalized for about a year. And all of a sudden you got to go back home and then you have to connect that with the change that, that went on literally. It's not like time went on frozen or went on freeze. Right. And, and the meaning making that goes behind that. And, and that's kind of how I view that transition. I, I went through a bit of that myself, by the way, when I, I got home it cracks me up because I'm supposed to be the, the curator of uh, spiritual care, but I was going through my, my own bouts of like, Oh my gosh, well, what, who, and what am I now? You know, in light of, of, of that. Um, I think of like that, that wounded healer, uh, 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 identity or, or name or certainly, yeah, wounded healers. Yeah, that's you hit one of my one of my favorite books from uh, Henri Nguyen. So the army describes the spiritual dimension of life, and this is uh, FM seven twenty two holistic health and fitness. Spiritual dimension entails identifying one's purpose, core values, beliefs, identity, and life vision. That's what defines the spiritual dimension. These elements, it says, which define the essence of a person, enable one to build inner strength, make meaning of experiences, behave ethically, persevere through challenges, and be resilient when faced with adversity. And that's really kind of the, the overarching idea that we've been talking about so far today, whether it's a deployment or death. These are experiences that sort of bring those questions to the forefront of, of, of existence and our ability to persevere through those things or to be resilient when faced with the adversity of a deployment or when faced with our own mortality is where does our purpose, our sense of identity, or our, our just our, our ideas about how the world is and how it's supposed to work, it, that's right in front of us. And really, in the of course, we're all practitioners in the in the spiritual dimension, right? But for for us, then it's how do we speak words of hope into that person's life in in that moment? Ooh, if if I may, sir. Um, so, and I don't even know how long. I don't know if there were previous um, editions of FM 7-22. I don't know how long it's been out for a while there are. But I, I even even today when I talk about this whole concept of spirituality, there, there are a couple of reactions, um, as many you two would probably guess. It's like this, uh, what's sort of been normalized was uh, spirituality is just a religious thing. And I, I know I've mentioned that before, and I, I don't want to make it sound like religion's bad. I mean, my goodness, I, I loving part of a religious community back home, and, and it's a big part of my life, but... Uh, it's making that clear distinction and it's to the point where like, you know, you talk about spiritual care. I've, I've literally had patients where, you know, it, it went both ways where, and soldiers as well. It's like, you know, I, I don't know about that, but we can give you a referral to spiritual care and they would react to something along the lines of, you know, okay, good spiritual care, as long as it's not a chaplain, you know, and, and vice versa around, oh, thank goodness, it's it's spiritual, uh, thank goodness it's a chaplain. I, I just don't want to deal with spiritual care. And, and there's a lot of underlying connotations between the two and, I, I know it'll take time, but I, I'm so grateful that um, this is being defined in a particular way that's um, 
a little more broad, not because I, I, I don't stand up for a particular religious belief or, or my own, but it's more like, man, we have such a diverse set of people in this country and the military reflects that. You got to have some common language. Otherwise, you're just going to have some, I don't know, some folks in the military say, chaplain, we don't need you. Nothing's religious here. But, you know, you look at the holistic health model, like chaplain skill craft instead of skills should be a curator of understanding and, and understanding who they are. And I get it. It's done over time. But yeah, you have a place at the table. So I, I acknowledge that. I, I'm actually curious when I talk to you two, two field grade officers in the room, like how, what, what that shift has been like for you two, you know, and uh, what you encounter when you talk to our, our soldiers. Um, and, and by the way, I, I do come from a religious community where like when I first gave them this definition, uh, a cute little church out in Nashville, Tennessee, that Madison area, I think the way they described it, if I had to summarize it, they thought it was some voodoo magic, you know, set off by the world. And I, I, I got a lot of pushback from that. But at the end of the day, I, I could tell it was a little bit of God working in it because they, they affirmed it and they, they saw the need for it. And I'm, I'm not saying that they're fully convinced of it, but I just think it's this ongoing conversation of how we use um, our, our vernacular and as, as language of all, because I would say spirituality, again, religion, and they think of maybe this, this transcendent plane of I know, a ghost or something, and you're looking at another realm and it, it's a, it's a thing, you know? Well, I think, I think you're right. I think it can feel or sound a little bit too squishy for people that don't often work in pluralistic environments. And we got to be honest, too. We, we all come out of distinct theological traditions from, from churches, and we do take very specific stands on the, the nature of the universe and how things work, who God is. And what that means to each of us in our relationship to God and our relationship to the world and our relationship to other people. What I think the strength of this holistic way of talking about spiritual fit, spiritual fitness or spiritual readiness is it blows the doors open and allows us to, to talk about it in general terms. But it also allows us to, to be who we are and, and to come in and to speak with specificity as we have opportunity. I love it. And that, that's why I, I completely endorse that, um, as, as we all should be, you know, as, as officers and chaplains. But yeah, uh, I, I acknowledge that definition. I, I'm not going to say I rave it, but I, I want to say when I deal with diverse sets of people, in both, you know, the clinical side and military, it's just so much more relatable, you know? Shane, what are you thinking? You know, I think, you know, when we're talking about being intentional about this holistic approach to, to fitness and readiness, I... I think one of the things that can help folks or, or the, those that we serve is really understanding what, what is your core? Who are you as a person? Uh, really digging into what your core is and what are some of those capabilities that you have. They're God-given natural capabilities and your strengths and maybe even identifying your lesser strengths. But having a good, clear understanding of your core uh, and who you are uh, can help you better prepare and and. and you know, be ready to approach that, that fitness and that readiness, you know, better identifying, okay, if I'm going to really be ready. Where do I need to be? Uh, what are my strengths? What are my lesser strengths? Okay. Take those lesser strengths and then let's, let's go full tilt forward and get a clear sight picture of where, where, where I need to be, uh, to be spiritually ready. So that's just some of my thoughts on, on that really, really identifying your core. Who am I? Uh, I see so many folks from the law enforcement community, the military community, they, they get close to retirement, and what's that big question is, I don't know who I am. 
and, and I'm getting ready to retire here, and, and uh, I got to be spiritually ready for what's my spiritual fitness look like for this next chapter of my life. You can even apply that to different assignments or different missions, whether it's it's a tour in Afghanistan or it's a tour at the you know the Horn of Africa or wherever wherever environment that that God's leading you to. How, how do I better prepare myself to be to be spiritually fit, spiritually ready? Uh, to take on the challenges that I'm going to end up facing. And I think you need to know where you are first uh, before you can step off that, that, uh, that stone, if you will. Mm-hmm. Boy, I love that, sir. Um, I, I, oh man, I think a, a good dosage of our spirituality, it really is this, this God-given uniqueness of, of who you are. And I, I know we use a lot of tools, um, you know, where I'm from, we use like the personality test. That's always been a big one. I think the Myers-Briggs in general and how that's, uh, and then like uh, things like the Enneagram. And so not just for relationship building, intentional good ones, you know, but I think of in times of stress, like you're kind of the same person. And I don't know if you two would agree, but I've consistently heard by folks in the past and um, even today where it's like, yeah, you know, you, you may be the West Moldogo part of Africa, but you're also the same West Moldova in many ways at your core, you know, as West Moldova here, you know, maybe 10 years from now, that, that's who you are, your uniqueness. Um, but just being mindful of that, so you, you just cope better, you know? So. Yeah, yeah I, I yeah. agree. And I think, yeah. I think too, when you understand your core, when those soldiers or service members come in your office and they're struggling and they've got, they got a major thing going on, whether it's trauma or, you know, it's personal or they've lost someone or lost a, a fellow service member on the battlefield, you know, if you understand where you are and you understand your core and you have a really good understanding of it, you can look and try to dig into their core a little bit and see inside their heart a little bit so you can better serve them and better minister to them. And, and that's, and that's what we do. And, and when they walk in, our goal is to connect, to earn trust and to really have a good understanding of where they are. And, uh, I, I just think core is an important piece of that is, is understanding, you know, where you are. If you, if you don't even know where you're at and, you're struggling with it, then it's it could inhibit a little bit, maybe maybe your your ministry to to those that we serve. So, um, I think that's a that's an important piece. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we serve all kinds. There, everyone is uniquely gifted, uniquely talented, and they're all a blessing that uh, that God brings before us. Um, but taking that time to really see inside those people uh, in the time that you have with them not only helps you serve them at that moment, but that continued follow up. Uh, ministry to them too so right valuing each person first as 100 percent, as an individual as a, as a human that's right loving them and and wanting to care for them no matter what they believe that that's exactly right we're, we're meeting people where they are we're not meeting them where we think they need to be or where where we think they're gonna be we're meeting them right where they are at that moment in time and and we can help you we can walk with you we can lock arms with you we're going to be there for you. We're going to go into the fight with you to maybe get you what, in, into a place where uh, we think you might need to be to be more successful uh, or more healthy. Uh, but for that moment, we're meeting them right where they are. No judgment, no, no preconceived notions. Um, we're meeting them right there. Well, and that, that can do great damage to a person or, or shut the door on any potential relationship when you meet them and you automatically assume you know exactly who they are and what they need before right. you talk with them and get and get to know them. And, and Wes, I think I heard you talk about that a little bit when you described how that chaplain, his approach to you 
way back at Simpson College yes. and and how he 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 loved you and and wanted to walk alongside you through a, a challenge that was maybe more complex than it seemed at, at first glance. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I, 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 I didn't tell the second half of that story. And so another reason why I became a, a chaplain as well was um, after I had that little uh, uh, intervention from the, the campus chaplain, I thought, wow, what a what a different type of minister this guy was. I ended up going, or I ended up uh, a couple of months later listening to the guard, getting back from basic, had my first drill and battle buddy of mine had a meltdown during my first day of drill and I was like talking to him and like uh, the squad leader was like do you want to go see the chaplain and so the chaplain comes over there I thought wow what a what what a cool looking guy the guy was like stacked with badges he was tabbed out I th- high expectations on my part and I, I don't know if this interpreted my interpretation or affected my interpretation but he then proceeds to and I got nothing against um outcome oriented solutions but if I had to describe his 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 way of interacting with, with this guy who's having this meltdown, long story short, my friend or my battle buddy, his mother died of cancer. Um, they didn't find out late. Her, she was just the type to not go to the doctor or hospital unless something was really wrong. And so it was a surprise to everyone, right? So this guy was going through shock, um, was crying. And the first thing this guy wants to do is, is, is stop him from crying. Hey, don't cry. And he, he then pulled out Job. And I just thought, I almost felt like his his pulling out of the passage and even praying for him to palliate his crying was probably more of him feeling uncomfortable. And I just remember reflecting on that um, later that evening. I thought, I, yeah, I, I think this is affirmation from God and the contrasting experiences from these two very different chaplains hmm. um, that maybe the type of spiritual care I would want to put forth. Um, yeah, but, but yeah, I, I, I certainly affirm. And I, when you bring up that, that chaplain at the campus, that that is, for some reason, I, I just can't help but think that is good, ch- good chaplaincy. Um, like I, I don't mean to make it seem like that's that's all of it, but that, again, I what I said earlier, great chaplains use the behavioral sciences, know when to pause, intuitively are just present, and likewise, um, the greatest BHOs who do that emotional support, they have that sense of yeah, human connectedness, not this clinical robot. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I yeah. think sometimes it's, you know, we we don't always have to have the answers. And, and, and actually Job is actually a good uh, reference from the perspective of his friends saw that he was suffering so much. They just sat with him and ministered to him from just being present ministry of presence. And, uh, you know, obviously they put some, some ash and dust on, but the the point there being, (laughs) I don't think we necessarily do that, but the point there being is that they loved him so much and they saw his suffering so much and they felt his suffering so much that they just hung with him. And, and they were boots on ground, loving on him by being with him. And I think sometimes we don't have to always start throwing answers at people that are in one of the worst moments of their life. Maybe we need to sit and listen to them and, and give them that ministry of presence and love on them right where they are. Ooh, no, that, that's perfect, sir. And, and going full circle to even what you mentioned earlier about the core, I, I believe, and I know it's easier in hindsight, this, this chaplain himself, I, I think he was, he didn't know what made him uncomfortable in the first place. So, and, and that's why he probably uh, uh, overreacted a little bit with maybe trying to go to a prayer too soon instead of holding this space with him, which is a really sacred space. I don't think this guy opened up to anyone else. And I do want to say the outcome of this, this kid, he, he just didn't talk to anyone, you know, for the next couple of months, uh, ended up going AWOL and uh, ended up leaving the guard. But yeah, I, 
the spiritual care providers and even providers in general, they, they just got to know themselves as well. Uh, again, I go back to that wounded healer mm-hmm. concept. Uh, I'm broken, so I could talk to other folks that are broken as well. By no means am I accusing any of our listeners of being broken, but I, I, I want to say our, our my pain is this also a little bit of yours. We've been talking about some some heavy topics this afternoon. One of the things that that is an interest and a passion of yours, and I think we've been talking around this up to this point, but thanatology. If my Greek is not quite as rusty as I think it is, that that's the the study of death or talking about death. Yeah, um, thanatology. It is uh, death. I, I think, um, and so I'll I'll define it at least the way the textbook does. So it's the study of death, grief, and bereavement, it kind of takes it a step further. And it also has a, a good dosage of, of gerontology, so the study of aging um, as well. And I, I yeah, so I, I, I got into that because I ended up getting uh, work in hospice, and I ended up managing bereavement for a while. I just felt super under, uh, I felt very under-equipped to, to manage it. And I thought, my understanding of this only goes so far as a couple of philosophers and maybe a couple of regulatory um, stuff I have to do for hospice, for CMS type stuff. But as I'm looking at it, I, I started to grow a big passion for it because, and then call it a lens, so to speak, but when I look at folks' um, spiritual pain, so to speak, so in other words, pain that relates to a person's core deep down, and I, I'm going to name stuff like moral injury being one of those things and maybe very poor coping, I, I see a little bit of grief, if not a lot of grief, and usually the end course of action for the intervention involves some sense of getting it to a place of closure. Um, you know, my church, we like using the word peace and shalom. I, that is probably very close to how, in terms of concept and idea, I would look at that closure in thanatology. And so it's just the study of it. What gets you there? What usually brings a person to that point where they're experiencing this pain? And yeah, I, I'd say it's fairly useful within the chaplain skill set. Although the truth is, I, I think chaplains have been doing it for years, but we just never put a language to it like this, you know, D- centuries, yeah. Well, certainly, and to to try to bring peace in the midst of of suffering is that's at the that's at the core of of what we do, right? When we talk about our our three core competencies to nurture the living, care for the wounded and honor the fallen, those three, well, all three verbs and nouns kind of drive at that bringing, bringing peace and hope in the midst of, of suffering or to, to give people hope even when they're not suffering or facing adversity so that when it comes, because invariably it comes, where, where do you find hope? Where do you find your identity and security in meaning and what what is it anchored to so that when it gets buffeted by all these challenges that it, there's it, it's going to hold or it's going to stick um no and and while i was standing studying thanatology by the way and a couple of things popped up that i find absolutely fascinating and and maybe you two relate to it so uh this term um onamkata, if you've heard of it it means soul friend and long story short, I don't even know when the medieval times were. Was that 16th century, 17th century? Um, well, I'm not a history no. guy. You're asking the wrong person. I'm I sorry. Be- I should know that. <laughs> I can't believe all the times. I think the- you're roughly talking what? Like 
fleets me. 11th century through the 16th, 17th century. Oh, Lord. There was this Catholic priest around that that time, though, who wrote a book called uh, The Book of, of Living and Dying. And a lot of it involved a lot of stuff from the early church, church fathers and mothers, people of the desert, you know, after Paul died. Yeah. And he, long story short, folks from Southwest Asia, Northern Africa, um, and parts of Eastern Europe would flock all the way to Ireland um, to go die. And uh, it, it's a little weird because in many ways, that was kind of like the first hospice. Um, and a lot of the philosophies they, 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 that made them a very uh, attractive place to have these people come forward to, it involved Ankara, Sulfren. And that was the whole philosophy of making someone comfortable. But it, it's, it's counterintuitive because you think of comfort, you think of pain medication, you think of, you know, let's make things nice and tidy for you. But what they did was the opposite. They mm. invited folks to reflect on their pain in life and lean into that. And so when I think of spirituality and your core, what what's troubling at your core right now, I think of, oh my gosh, wh- what is it, you know? And yeah, I, when I think of the core philosophy of what hospice is and good palliative care, quality of life, I mean, even before you're dying, I mean, I see folks at their jobs, you know, whether it be in the military or on the civilian side, man, they're they're dragging butt right now, dude. And mm-hmm. uh, there's something wrong with their core. I, I think we use language as midlife crisis. Uh, uh, you know, I think we think of, you know, other terms for it. But yeah, that that becomes a very spiritual conversation very fast. And I, I love reading on this this concept of Adam Kata. Uh, it's Celtic and Gaelic, by the way, soul friend. Um, and much of Nowen's work, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> it involves a lot of that. Right, even if he didn't use that term, but that's a that's a really powerful picture. And we were just talking about Job a few minutes ago. Yeah. So instead of trying to dull the pain or numb the pain or blunt it or or even put it away or you know make it so that you don't feel it anymore, it's just someone sitting with you in in the ashes in in the pain and walking with you and and helping lead you through that. Oh, it's so counterintuitive. And so, again, um, if the goal of, of of hospice, usually it is comfort, I by no means am I saying, and I, I whenever I say this to someone, sometimes I'll get the question of, well, aren't you supposed to be the chaplain? Aren't you supposed to talk about hope? I, I think they're, and you both know this very well, you've been in the game for a while, there, there are just certain points when to highlight, when there is a, a point to highlight the hope. But I think in a lot of times, in order to get to that hope, fully and securely, you got to talk about that elephant in the room, Um, as off-putting as that seems sometimes. Pick your spot, though, obviously. But yeah, I think out of all the people, we kind of have the biggest excuse to, um, sorry, I shouted into the microphone there. We we have the biggest excuse to bring it up sometimes in a timely and appropriate manner, risking it at least. Yeah, well, we we can call it what it is. And then, well, if we call it what it is, then when we talk about hope, it's not a naive optimism, yeah. right? It's not just a uh, an eye washing that says oh, it's all going to go away. Don't worry about it. We're not we're not saying don't worry about it. We're saying I see this is worrying you or troubling you. Yes. Oh Lord, sir, I I want to say that the biggest thing that that has, in many ways, freaked me out, but also <sighs> surprised me is especially when I talk about grief stuff and, and things that, that make people, that, that give people pain or pain that causes grief, I can't help but think about how often we, we change the topic of that so fast for something that's so normal. 
Um, and I, I know I'm, I'm centering around grief right now because that's probably the easiest thing to talk about, but just, just a lot of things that, that bring folks spiritual pain, pain in the core. And like, it just takes the person with the right skill set to, to bring that about. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I, I just throw that out there. Um, I think chaplain and BHO, but, but I don't limit it to us by any means. Uh, well, Wes, just so that we don't end it on such a maybe a heavy note, where oh where do you where do you find peace and hope? The the type of peace and hope and comfort that 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 animates you and drives you forward. Um, three things in particular. One is this really strong conviction. Uh, in many ways, that drives my pastoral care. It, it's this uh, this uh, desire to to in turn give the same type of reconciliation God has given me with, with myself and my community. I, I hope to look at folks that may be feeling that same discrepancy and, and, and journey with them down that, that path as, as hard as that may be. I don't, no matter how long that may take. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. my, my commitment to that, the second is um, learning from my patients. I would even say this, expand that to soldiers. I, I learned so much from them. And in many ways, although I may not be going through some crazy stuff in my life, I'll look at someone give care to i think i i learned mo- i learned a lot from you i benefited from, from having you probably more than you benefited having me <laughs> as your care provider and then three believer i find great hope in in, in all the mistakes i've i've made and continue to make <laughs> uh I, and, and by i by that i mean in all the losses i do get i i i am kind of a winner at the end of the day um thank goodness i take time to reflect on a lot of this stuff and yeah, I'd say I do find a lot of hope in that, um, or maybe the process of finding hope in that, um, realizing you know there there is a second chance. I think of a couple of blotched examples in the hospital, and <laughs> maybe outpatient with the hospice. I, I'm like, yeah, this could have been better. And thank goodness I have such an understanding team. I, I I get a second chance at this. Well, we could probably talk for a couple more hours. Hours, yeah, no. But thanks, thanks for your time today, Wes and, yeah, and Shane and Chris. Likewise. God bless you in your work with the volunteers and in your work in the civilian world as you bring peace and and provide care to to people who are in the midst of um, suffering and death. No, thank you. Thank sir. you. Thank you for your work uh, and, and and who you are. It's, I'm glad to have you. <laughs> thank you, sir. And thank you, sir. Yeah, you bet. This podcast is produced by the Oregon National Guard Public Affairs Office. My prayer for you is that wherever you find yourself, that you might find hope for today and strength for the ambiguity and chaos of life. Blessings on the rest of your day.